Welcome to the Adult Candy Podcast. I'm Miss Crystal, your host and idea slinger. What is adult candy about? Well, it's dedicated to cultivating creativity and sensuality in adults, which, let's be honest, is what we all want more of anyway. This exploration of mindful indulgence is in conversations with a very delicious mix of rebels, noted creatives, and sex-positive advocates of an imaginative variety. We dig into process and tools for facing fears and chasing dreams and keeping the magic in running the business of creative sexy cool. While this is absolutely going to be explicit with adult content and bursting with very sexy, the mission here is about embracing and accepting pleasure and desire, which is an internal process. And that is the foundation for any type of meaningful intimacy, passion, or sexual prowess. So buckle up or unbuckle or buckle down because in these very bizarro times, we absolutely can't go back. We go through. Instigator is what uh, was called this year at Burning Man, and I really liked it. Cultural instigator. That's fair. Mm-hmm. I like that actually. That yeah. really. And it's not passive. No. <laughs> Franklin said there is no greater cultivator cultivator of the mind than agriculture. And gardens teach you on so many different vectors. They teach you about yourself. They teach you about your own processes. They teach you about patience. They teach you about time. They teach you about um, like forgiveness and um, cycles of life. And so I think that um, the big way to start is you just start. And as a professional landscaper, I go to lots of people's houses, and one of the first things out of their mouth is, I'm not good at plants, I kill plants, I'm bad at plants. And I just don't think that anyone 
is naturally bad at plants. I don't think that there are plants that are naturally trying to die, you know, and the, um, the first step of motivation is, I think, the belief in yourself and the willingness to try. And that we live in sort of a can-don't-based culture, and so many people go to the store and they look at a plant and they think, I can't do that. I will kill it. I am bad. There's something I am carrying claw around in it that I can't do. That's very basic. And I don't think that's true for anyone. I think everyone has a potential to be everyone has the potential for um, presence as another life form and sort of like will it and uh, help it along in its its formation of itself. That hits me on so many different levels in that this year I actually attempted to own plants and I still have one that is working but of course I love tropical plants apparently I like brightly colored plants and that doesn't really work in the, the high plains. I guess I don't water them enough. I don't know. I mean, it's, if I lived in Denver, I would think I was bad at plants, too. Mm. You know, it's like a fighting a certain ecosystem. It's like, in Denver, you should learn to like yuccas and sages and amaranths and, you know, high plains, low water, <laughs> alkali-based plants. And if you love those, you'll always feel like you're a good gardener. If you're insisting on growing begonias, you might never, you know, it's like with the, uh, you know, if you uh, judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will always think it's stupid or whatever. <laughs> it's like, well, if you try and force some sweet little tender rainforest plant to live in a desert hellscape, yeah, you might not look like that good a gardener. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that that applies also to, like, relationships. Yeah. It's like, uh, oh, I always want to go for this particular type of person, and I always feel shitty because we always end up in bad relationships. And... Of course you do, because you don't have the same makeup, right? Like that same, dare I say, the, the similar, yeah, the same ecology, the same baggage that is complementary to one another. One of the reasons I even moved to the West Coast is when we lived in Denver together, um, this really brilliant anarchist woman said to me, like, um, amaranth is a tumbleweed in this ecosystem. In this ecosystem, amaranth is spiky and sharp and full of seeds and dry and flammable and rolls around the plains lost, hoping it will find some place where it can regenerate. But once it gets over the mountains and gets into like the lush valley of the West Coast, it ceases to be this prickly plant and starts to become this soft, beautiful, edible seed that has like, you know, fed empires for millennia. Um, <laughs> and so it's like finding the place that you thrive and finding the section of your life or your career or the planet itself that has built you. Maybe you're just not to be in certain circumstances. Maybe that plant doesn't like being in the desert. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. To be said about me being in Denver altogether, right? Mm. I wish you were wise woman would have told me that <laughs> 20 years ago. But some place, you know, some people deeply thrive there. Like, I, yeah, I mean, true. I love Denver. It's one of my favorite places in the world, but as someone who wants to be a year-round gardener, that's not going to work. <laughs> that is correct. That is absolutely That correct. is a lot of me serving french fries all winter long, waiting for spring to come. <laughs> <laughs> um, in that, how do you draw boundaries for yourself? I mean, you, because you inherently, you give fundamentally to your community and to your relationships and to the garden. I mean, how do you actively find space for yourself 
historically how I held boundaries is by getting overwhelmed and then being a dick about it, um, which is not really what I would recommend to people. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I am attempting to say phrases like, oh, that is terrible, but I don't know how to solve that for you. And I have also been practicing saying things like, I will talk to you about this, but not right now. Uh, and that at first felt really terrible because I think that people are so used to having Part of it is just like trying to prioritize my own mental state and ask myself, like, do you have the ability to handle this? You know, and it's like, if it's a little thing, you know, if it's a little problem, then I can usually cure it right away. But you know, we're queers in Trump's America, so it almost never is a little thing. It's always something horrifying and sad. Um, and so at first it felt really bad to tell people who are going to wait for me for a few for a few days. Unpopular opinion, I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as it was under President Bush. I think that um, President Bush was like literally a hundred times scarier, which is why I'm super not interested in who the Dutchman are. Because oh, yeah, he was yeah. smart and vicious, Trump is just vicious. Um, it's weird to be old and to remember HIV being really raging and remember time before PrEP and remember all these things that a lot of young queers no concept of it. Uh, you're young queers truly freaking out about how awful things are, and I'm like, it's the same level of awful that it's always been. I have not noticed a giant uptick in terribleness. Um, I have just noticed that the terribleness is now actually quiet. You know what I mean? I don't think that people got more hungry than they think they did that um, I don't think that the world got more hungry. I think the world is way less homophobic. I just think phone and be inundated with like the hellscape that is like the larger queer community's life, whether or not you're actually personally having a hellscape in that moment, right? Yeah. You know, and living in beautiful West Oakland as a queer person is pretty gloriously nice. You know what I mean? Like I never feel yucky or scared and like the amount of times that people have gotten in my face in the last three years. It was always just the mugging rather than like an actual really big thing. Like people haven't come at me in a Young people, anything. 
and at the time I was really offended by it. But um, but you were a young person. No, I wasn't a young person. I was a middle-aged person, and I was really trying to teach young people things. But what I've learned is no, like if a young person wants to learn something from you, they'll ask. But I don't. There's not really an easy way to explain to them how different the world is. You know, it's like a lot of times I will have to say things like, "Well, you know, when I was your age, it was still illegal to say gay in public schools in the United States," and they're like. That's completely mind-boggling to them yeah. because as long as they've been alive, at least people knew there was such a thing as gay people. Like, even the people who hated us and disliked us, at least, you know, you could see that there were gay people on television, you could see there were gay people in magazines, and it was like, they just, that just didn't become true. And so trying to explain to them what visibility feels like, I think, is almost impossible. I don't think that you can explain to someone oh, well, we used to be invisible. It was sort of like being like, well, we used to be able to fly. And the young queers look at you like, yeah, right, we couldn't fly. Um, <laughs> and it's true, kids, we could not fly. But we did used to be invisible. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I don't know. I, I think that um, young people are going to always be out looking for finding things out for themselves. And that's beautiful, and that's part of being young. But it also means that I don't really necessarily need to go around trying to teach them anything. Like, <laughs> if they want me, they'll come ask. <laughs> and then maybe they will or won't listen to the response. Is this idea of that now that queer culture is not invisible, what do you think are the opportunities in developing sensuality and a sense of their sexuality in, in a way that would be different from, like, I am invisible trying to develop who I am? showed with gay marriage is that marriage is not defined by the union of a dominant man to a submissive woman. A marriage is a business contract between two people. And that does change the entire definition of marriage. And that's something that's like, you know, you're welcome, straights. Like, <laughs> you know, like, cool, now your marriage becomes an egalitarian partnership between two people who are in love also. And we get to change the entire tradition around, you know, feminine submission and uh, the man is head of the household and all of those sort of concepts are emphatically outdated, and we sort of um, hold the line against them. So I think that our visibility shows people that there is a wide range of potentials to how to be, and so that if you're young now, you don't have to choose a regular path because there's no such thing as Patriarchal culture, yeah. <laughs> what do you envision as being like the return of the matriarchy? What does that look like for you? Um, as someone I, who I'm sure is, is deeply meditated on that. Yeah. Um, well, 
you know, I read two things. One that said that um, men always conceive of the matriarchy replacing the patriarchy um, as like a flip of dominish, dominance and submission. And that's what they feel. Is that, um, and I don't think that the matriarchy will be an authoritarian system of feminine rule. I think, you know, um, like Francis Germain, the feminist thinker from the 70s, said the opposite of the patriarchy is not matriarchy, it's paternity. Um, she said the feminist economics um, teach us to value all work um, as its own labor, including emotional labor, or, you know, Alexander Berkheim called low-carbon feminine work. Um, that we aren't necessarily looking for, like, a culture shift where it's like, now women are in charge and men are punished. We're looking for a culture shift where all people's opinions and bodily autonomy and right to be and express themselves are respected equally. And so, like, everyone can rise together. That, um, there doesn't, I don't see, like, a, a system of, you know, the other gender is on top. I feel like uh, if in our feminist revolution there will be multiple genders and everyone will be on top. And everyone will be allowed to be as valid and express themselves as they need to express themselves. Um, I think the patriarchy just only allows for some people to express themselves and that's what the shift will look like. Mm. How do you think as an individual you can shift that along? Mm, I don't really know. I mean, other than the stuff I'm already doing, like if I had something I could think of to do with that, I feel like more I would just do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't have any like, well, we should do. Like as soon as I come up with a, what we should do, I just do it. Um, but I think uh, teaching men to be present with their emotions, to express their emotions, to be able to identify more emotions than three. You know, it's like there are more emotions than bored, frustrated, and angry. Um, <laughs> hungry and horny are not emotions. Um, <laughs> sorry to limit the power, dudes. Um, <laughs> but I think I can basically just model for men what a, like, a nurturing, open masculinity looks like. Um, you know, and trying to change certain concepts in men of, like, to me, one of the most masculine things you can do is care for yourself. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, a real man knows how to, like, whip up some damn dinner for his kids and get their fucking, you know, lunch pack for tomorrow. That's really masculine. Like, that's like, that's yeah, a real, that's what you do. Yeah, like, I mean, that's, that's like the epitome of strength of, like, helping young people or helping old people. And so I guess I'd like to see a sort of return to that, like, the 70s, like, new masculinity of defining the masculine traits, like, the positive masculine traits of emotional presence or, um, a desire towards justice, um, like sort of reframing the worst impulses of men into um, restructuring the worst impulses of men to like rehabilitate them and making a stronger, more sustainable culture. Because ultimately, it will benefit them. You know, right. they'll be stoked once a lot of this pressure comes off and they can just like, <laughs> like cry and like listen to their own hearts and talk about their feelings with their bros or whatever. Like they're gonna love that. <laughs> it's gonna be great for them. <laughs> it is interesting how people uh, are scared of the things that will make them feel really good. Mm -hmm. You know, and like, like all of 
gets always comes up for me is that you know people are like, oh well, my taxes will be raised if I get Medicare for all. Like, yeah, but you won't have to be paying nickel and dime, you know, your seventy-five dollar copay and all of these things because you'll just have this one simple bill up front, right? And I think it's emotionally kind of the same way that it's like if everyone's holding space for like, oh, I'm understanding who I am and I'm spending a little bit more time for myself in the creative world and therefore I'm a lot less dickish when I go to work and I'm miserable and blah, 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 you know. And part of what we were, I was saying is that you know, men have learned to experience a wider range of emotions. And we know that they didn't mean any positive emotions. Mm-hmm. I think that men are taught that they uh, don't deserve pleasure, that pleasure is something that you give up when you stop being a boy, mm-hmm. um, that joy is an unmasculine uh, emotion. And it's just like, I want them to experience the full range of emotions. Like, I want to, like, sometimes, like, you go to the park and you'll see some guy with, you know, playing or whatever, and actually be like totally smiling and it seems so rare because men very rarely ever which is ironic you know like the whole stereotype of men telling women to smile but like men are never smiling they look grumpy every fucking way they go and so i think teaching men to like find pleasure in little things like enjoy this cup of coffee a lot and smile while you drink it you know what i mean it's like uh, teaching men that like oh you could get a face mask and a massage and that feels nice. Yeah, you could take an, a bath tonight. You know what I mean? Like, I bet some men are like, like <laughs> and I was like, I would have hated free shower technology land. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and I I'm pretty <laughs> sure that baths were around, you know, <laughs> like, in most like, baths are bad, but swimming is still fine. Like, okay, well, you know, we're just scaled. <laughs> like, um, yeah, so I, I would like to see, like, um, us teach men how to joy also, and how to look for joy and how to facilitate joy. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not, not anti-bro culture, is a lot of times bros seem like the most happy of the men. You know, you see them all playing basketball, and you see them like go do whatever with each other, and you know, fix their car, or like, you know, it's like that to me is like happy, joyful, non-toxic masculinity. It's like, we have to present as masculinity, it's not toxic. You know, it's like, we can't just say, oh, masculinity is toxic, and be like, well, work it out, because it's like, what is the alternative? Yeah, what is the alternative? And that might look like, you know, you know that non-toxicity is the eye of the holder. So, like, maybe you and I look out the window, and we see four guys working on their truck, and we imagine that they're being jerks with each other. But maybe in real life, they're being nice to each other. So, it's like, we, you know, we also kind of not need to not police always doing things together and make it's not necessarily problematic they want to throw a baseball around. You know? If they're talking to my sisters about women while they throw a baseball around, no, that sucks. If they're just like giggling and talking about dogs, that's great. so many of these experiments and what's funny is that they keep showing basically that guys don't have it's not oppressive for us to look like it like and it keeps being this this weird thing where um if you know some feminist filmmaker will go to like try and get a gotcha recording and then people at the end of the thing she has to be like so apparently guys think this behavior is really happy and um 
don't know if you've ever read Utopia, but it's like a, a book from the seventies by Amos Kallenbach, and it's like a story about um, there's been a civil war in America, and um, California is now its own nation called Utopia, and <laughs> it's a feminist nation. Um, and in it, one of the ways, and the book is like weirdly spot on on a lot of things, and then completely misses the mark on a couple other things. But fifty years later, it's fascinating to see what a futurist is thought to be living in. <laughs> he saw all sorts of great things, but the internet was like yeah, over his head. But um, in Ecotopia, they make it illegal for men to catcall women in any way. But women are totally encouraged to catcall men. Hmm. And men love it. If I'm walking down the street and somebody screams out, you look great today, I don't feel attacked. I feel like I look great. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's the power dynamic. And right. so, like, men have weaponized the compliment against women. Whereas, like, if women were to, like, have the power and just be like, bro, you look hot in your construction uniform, he would get back up on his little construction job and go back to work. It's stoked. It wouldn't hurt his feelings. He wouldn't be sad because... <laughs> Go ahead and try, bro. Like I'm scrappy as fuck. I am scrappy as fuck. Like and it like being scrappy as fuck means that you walk around with this huge privilege of not being scared. Mm. Like I'm never like, uh oh, I hope these people aren't gonna try and fuck with me. I'm like I'm gonna have to kick you out. Yeah. I mean it's like the most common way to get out of a mugging when you're me is be like, dude. things that don't make sense. And so when I was in clubs and guys would come up to me 
and I'd be like, okay, uh, thanks for uh, offering to buy me a drink. What do you What do you want right now? What are you looking for? And every single time when I ask them in the most, you know, uh, diplomatic way, please tell me what your intentions are, sir. I would like to either let you know that I am interested or I am not interested. I never got a straight answer from a man. Oh, yeah. I think that um, that is, like, I think men are completely terrified of being straight answer. It's like the joke about, like, uh, you know, gay culture is not knowing if you're on a date or not. <laughs> and it's like, you can be on a date with a guy, and it could be the third time you've had dinner and had sex in that order together and you can ask them um right at the end of the thing Let's just go to dinner. 
and so we go to dinner, we have this beautiful dinner, and after the beautiful dinner, he's like, well, sex would be very nice now, and I remember just being all like, whoa, and I was too young to really fully appreciate that, and if anything, I think maybe he's the one that kick-started my own ability to be like, maybe I should just tell the truth, maybe I should just ask real questions, What's you know, thing? exactly. And the other time that I had a wonderful Scorpio experience was I was walking down the street and it was after a, um, it was like Whip It, right? And I was all dressed for Whip It, but I decided that I wanted to leave and I didn't want to be in, you know, doing a bunch of coke in a hot tub with a bunch of DJs. For some reason that didn't sound sexy to me, so I was like walking home in like vinyl and all the hair and all the stuff. And like he walks past me and then he tells me that I should smile, right? And I sound livid because I hated it when people told me that. I'm like, um, maybe I'm just not, I'm smiling on the inside and I'm perfectly happy. I just don't need to smile with you. And we got into this huge conversation and we're having this very intense dynamic about really speaking honestly. And then he just sort of pauses and he's like, do you want to have, like, he like, like throws up his arms and he's like, do you want to have sex with me or not? And I was just like, and then I had to like think about it. I was like, hmm, maybe I do want to have sex with this man. And I did end up having sex with him, to be noted. But it was just this like amazing moment where someone gave me the respect of saying, you get to make a choice. And like, I will respect your opinion, whatever, you know? And it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Probably why I married a Scorpio. Anyway, that being said, more of that. <laughs> it's more of men respecting women's opinions enough to actually tell them what is and what they actually want. Right? And don't dress it up like it's something else. Right. Because that's really the part that, that drives Okay. And we're back. Um, thank you to the friend that called to interrupt my recording and then didn't, and I didn't know about it. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway. <laughs> Um, we missed out on some really good stuff, but what we were just discussing was, um, men not having, um, how to say this? What were you saying? It was about how men's bodies are not their own and that they're just automatically thought of as being able to, um, you know, just like lay down their lives. Yeah. The, um, the the entire culture says that men's bodies uh, belong to the government or to the boss of the business and uh, men are expected to be ready to die for their country or ready to die for their family at every moment and our physical labor like we're expected to like destroy our bodies in order to make money mm. um, in order and that I think that like as we correct for the entire society we're gonna have to think about what things are also unjust to men and it's like you know how labor is done in this country is horrible for working men. You know what I mean? And yeah, there are some women who work in dangerous industries, but by and large, men have the bulk of the dangerous jobs, and the bulk of the dangerous jobs are the least regulated and have the most amount of like crazy high injury rates, getting your hand cut off, you know, getting your leg run over, all of these sorts of things. And that's just part of the labor force, and we're not even trying to discuss ways to make it like detoxify the labor of men and so it's like if their entire work life is 
a chocolate today. Then, of course, the rest of the ever like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, if you spend your entire day trying really hard to not get your hand crushed by a machine, and nobody values you because they can just get another guy with two hands after yours is mangled, but right. and um, you come home and you're like, you're broken and, you're, yeah, and, and nobody cares about you because you're a man. You're supposed to suck it up, you know, right. like. Men are not supposed to discuss their depression. Men are not supposed to discuss their fears. Men are not supposed to discuss anything around like their weaknesses. And the entire culture exploits that. Mm. You know, all of the bosses know that men can't sit around in the break room and be like, bro, this job is breaking my back. It's breaking my back too. It's breaking my back also. Maybe we should start a union. Mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the, um, making sure that men fear each other and can't communicate with each other and only know how to express violence toward each other is a great way to make it so men don't co-organize. You know, mm -hmm. solidarity is the opposite of toxicity. And seeing all men as your brotherhood, you know, it's like the communist worker ideal, that's something you have to be able to do in order to use communist worker ideal tactics to like secure your employment in a more positive manner. Um, that will move forward in you know because I'm I'm so fascinated by the age of like 3d printing and you know um, driverless cars and you know I mean we're just gonna have this huge massive workforce that just simply will not be useful because of technology I'm hoping that that's what like spurs our impulse towards socialism is because there's a couple ways it could go. Like one, we could achieve this amazing automation for the first time in history and have like zillions of jobs be eliminated by computers and robots. And we could either say like, oh, sorry everyone who doesn't have jobs, you're all now screwed. Let's have giant like shanty Wars. towns of like, <laughs> you know, deeply impoverished people Mad all struggling. Yeah, I mean, we can get dystopian and we probably will because powers of you love dystopia. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's like a big part of what's going to have to shift is that like all of these industries are going to have these workers and we're going to have to like retrain them to do things. And so, you know, I think that some part of that will be us having like, you know, a green new deal where we're training people away from building oil derricks and teaching them instead how to rebuild mangrove swamps or how to replant forests rather than cut them down or how to do, um, you know, uh, bioremediation work rather than biodestruction work. Um, and so there'll be some jobs that will be retooled, but then all the like jobs that just will never be retooled is, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called it low carbon um, domestic work. It's like the economy, which in the 80s, you know, they kept saying that we were going to shift away from a manufacturing economy to um, a service-based economy. And to some extent we did switch to a service-based economy but we haven't made the full transition, but I would see that, you know, a huge chunk of where these workers are gonna go is going to be in garden tending, healthcare, um, child rearing, you know, it's like we're gonna massively expand Education. our domesticity and our, our nurturance, you know, it's like basically we would have like an actual Peace Corps. And so all of these people who like would normally be sitting on an assembly line doing this, maybe, they are at a preschool, uh, you know, because now preschools have seven workers rather than one. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, that we, we would shift the priorities of the economy. And, you know, humans will always need domestic work. We'll always need people to make our food. And we'll always need people to, you know, 
teach our kids and play music and you know make cloth and do art and so I think domestic work will become the next wave of the economy and that will be part of and welcoming men into a nurturing space economy will be a part of that. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, you're not going to work in a coal mine. You're going to work in a preschool. A preschool, yeah. You're going to teach these kids how to do whatever cool things you teach preschool kids how to do. I don't know. Yeah. Electricity. <laughs> like, yeah. like, let's teach four-year-olds how to be electricians. Yeah. <laughs> and let me guess, we'll get a lot more Teslas out of that, mm-hmm. I promise. You know. Yeah, it's like... um. Like I'm hoping, like since I'm hoping that all everything goes together in the culture shift, and that the new masculinity will emerge hand in hand with the automation and socialism and respect for the climate. Mm-hmm. And so, like I see them all as like going together in the same walk. But um, and as that, I think that the natural lean towards that is developing. Now you have time and space to cultivate creativity mm-hmm. and sensuality and like that is the natural and I definitely think we should work towards things like you know um, a lot of countries going towards the four day work week mm. you know and it's like the unions had to fight to get us a 40 hour work week but what if we had a mandatory 32 hour work week and we all made the same and everyone still had their benefits and like people were fine but three days off a week is infinitely better for your Sanity. life you know what I mean and yeah. it's like like the say, uh, saying in the union days was like um eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we choose. And I think it should be like six hours for work, nine hours for rest, (laughs) nine hours for whatever we choose. You know, I think we need to like buy ourselves more. Because I mean, I think that that, that shifts everything. It's like all of a sudden um, there'll be more people in the garden picking their own vegetables because they have an extra time to do it. There'll be more people coaching soccer practice or uh, participating in a community theater or going to a protest or doing any sort of whim that pleases them. Following a hobby, reading books, like the whole culture. Like, a lot of jobs are so intense that, like, you need time for your muscles to actually heal. Like, I know as a landscaper, if I work five days in a row for a month or two, that I will wake up one Monday and not be able to go to work because I would be too sore. So we should build that in to how people work. It's like, we know that if you put X amount of stress on your body, you're going to have to have X amount of downtime. So let's build that downtime into the economy rather than treating people like they are weak when they need to sleep a little bit more or I've always felt like a that we should be able to have like uh, a test because I mean I know people who simply do not function before 11 a.m. Like, mm-hmm. they just do not and they suffer for you know they're clinging on to their coffee for dear life and they're just absolutely miserable and then there's like the people who like they're up at 4:55 and like a seven o'clock is like oh god you know, I mean, I, I, I want to see flexibility come into, like, truly the mass market, where it's like everything, it's like a 12-hour uh, availability. A, bl- a bank should be open 
for 12 hours. You know, every, everything should be open for 12 hours. I read this, like, thinker a couple years ago, and he said that, um, you know, people have natural sleep cycles and shifts because back in the day when we were still, like, nomadic and hunter-gatherers, you needed somebody who was going to be up all night to keep watch, and you needed somebody who was going to get up in the morning to relieve them. And, you know, so, like, maybe the bulk of humans exist in this, like, we're awake during the day and we go to sleep at night thing, but the outliers uh, also are very valuable assets to the rest of humanity. And turning the, the culture a little bit more 24 hours, I think would be awesome. Like, I mean, unfortunately for me, I am naturally the kind of person who wants to sleep until 10 or 11 every day, and I want to be a gardener. <laughs> and that is always going to be like a dichotomy I have, because, yeah. you know, when I was a farmer, all the other farmers would be out in the field by 5.45 in the morning, and I would roll into my field at, like, 9 o'clock, <laughs> and they would all make fun of me, but my yields were the same as theirs because I would work later in the day. Right. Um, and I didn't mind, but all of the other farmers just thought, like, I was absurd. They were like, why did you sleep in? They are like, we will see you sitting on your porch in your bathrobe at, like, 8.45 in the morning, smoking pot, like, Ugh, <laughs> and your work is literally like two more steps. Like all you have to do is walk down the stairs and you're in the field. Like, you know, like the field rocked like right up to our house. And I would still be like, oh, God, it's so early. I don't want to do it. And but then at the end of the year, when we're looking at, you know, pounds of food produced, like there was no difference in my yields. The plants don't care what time I get there. Right. It was a little absurd sometimes when I'd be outside, like picking vegetables with a headlamp on. But, <laughs> you know, they got lights and greenhouses, you know. So. Yeah, that was so true. Also, I think that what would be really interesting is if we, like, introduced spa as, like, an essential, like, an essential thing that's, like, built into our culture. Like, you know, going to a hot tub, having, like, you know, having this time to, like, steam and sauna and, you know, and all of those things to just, like, rejuvenate the muscles regularly to just have rest and community. I mean, you know, they do it in Japan. And Japan is an island that has somehow managed to survive for several thousand years. I truly believe that, you know, you could base most of that on the fact that they eat, you know, rice and fish. And uh, also they spa. I do think that having access to spas would be so awesome. And, you know, they've got those, like, like um, hot tubs like or whatever. like that are like Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, they have those community, like, hot tub chambers, and, they, you know, they're mostly used by, like, prostitutes and people having affairs, you know, both of which I've been, so I'm not judging. <laughs> but um, I would love to see those spaces be, like, expanded on and have it be, like, just a thing. Like, oh, yeah, me and my buddies are all going to go to the hot tub together. Like, no, I, I, I think so it would be so nice. I mean, as soon as I have regular access to a hot tub, like, whenever I've had regular access to a hot tub, I was dumbfounded by how much time I spent in the hot tub. Like, it is just fine by me to take a hot tub every day like i love hot water right. i think it's really good for you you're not reproducing so go ahead right. <laughs> steam up the shorty as <laughs> so much as you want no big deal can you you're not supposed to take hot tubs if you're trying to make babies yeah really yeah the intense heat oh and the little doozies die yeah, yeah. Hmm. not as perfect god it's like that's right <laughs> It's <laughs> terrible. I'm trying to have a baby. I can't get in the hot water. Ooh. Yep. Cold mm. shower only, buddy. Oh. Yeah. With some very thin skin that you're sitting on. <laughs> That's insane to me. 
of all of the things that shock you or that don't I don't know I mean nuts always are like weird to me I'm like no, it I is one of those things like why did you like let them hang off of our body <laughs> you know like that's such a stupid evolutionary thing a I friend of mine likes to say that evolution um uh is uh, intelligent design but it goes to the lowest bidder um, <laughs> and it's like it does sort of feel like you just like left them floating out there like waiting to get caught in zippers or lopped off by <laughs> passing cars like, like, I mean, like this is not the final design yeah. like, we're, it's still definitely a work in progress for men yeah. like, and I remember reading also that like um, you know the Greeks really thought that um, like large testicles were beastly um, and like not cool and I was like I wonder why and now it makes sense I'm like well Got these big old knockers that are just getting in your way. <laughs> like, yeah. Can't yeah. get anyone pregnant because you get dragging them through hot water. Like, no. Like, ooh. It's it's a, it's a lot. Like that design, I think, can still use some improving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I think this was good. Yep. <laughs>